0: This week on Making Contact, a story from one country that's been living under a total abortion ban, El Salvador.
1: There are many women who are in prison who are innocent and who are in prison because of poorly prepared and negligent forensic evidence, because of uncritical judges, because of judges who don't read medical reports, judges who don't ask questions, judges who let themselves be guided by supposedly scientific evidence, and who easily sentence these women.
0: And what might restricted access to abortion look like in the United States? We'll speak with the policy director from Black Women for Wellness Los Angeles later in the show. But first, we go to El Salvador, a country with some of the strictest abortion laws in the world. Dozens of women have been put behind bars since 1998, when the Central American nation made abortion illegal in all circumstances, even stillbirth. Teodora del Carmen Vasquez is one of those women. Producer anna Catherine Brigida brings us the story from San Salvador.
2: International human rights groups have called out El Salvador for its harsh abortion laws since at least 2013. At that time, a campaign was launched to free the 17 women imprisoned under the law. With natural charisma, Teodora has become the
3: unofficial spokesperson for this group of women. My name is Teodora del Carmen Vásquez. My name is Teodora del Carmen Vásquez. It's been five months since I was released from jail. I was sentenced to 30 years, of which I served 10 years and 7 months. My story started July 13, 2007. I was pregnant. I was waiting for my child to be born. It was a full-term pregnancy. I had a lot of hopes of meeting my baby. Both me and her father were happy, and my family, too. We were happy waiting for her, but unfortunately, things didn't happen the way we had planned. July
2: 13, 2007. It was a Friday, and Teodora was at the school where she worked, helping her co-workers set up for an event the next day. Around 6 or 7 at night, she didn't feel well, so she went to lie down. When I
3: was in the bedroom, I started to feel strong pains, but really, really super strong. So then without any other option, because I didn't know what to do, I grabbed my phone and I started to call 911, which is the number of the national police, because no other number came to my mind.
2: Terora waited and waited and waited. Y... y no llegaron.
3: And they didn't arrive. Many minutes passed after the first call, and they didn't arrive. I called again. I couldn't take anymore. My baby had to be born there where I was. My baby had to be born there, and when she was born, I fainted.
2: What happened to Teodora and her baby is known as fetal epoxia. It happens when a fetus is deprived of oxygen during pregnancy which causes birth complications. Teodora's lawyer explained that this is common for women who are malnourished and don't receive proper prenatal care. This is particularly common in poor, rural communities in El Salvador. Teodora had all the common symptoms. Sharp pains, fainting, and foggy memory. If she had been at the hospital at the time, doctors would have given her proper care. But that was not the case.
3: I went to look for help, and in that moment the police arrived, the same police that I had called. They asked me, whose baby is this? And I said, mine. I just had the baby. I was calling you and you didn't come. It had to be born here. And he said, but the baby is dead. You killed
1: her.
2: If that was not traumatic enough for Teodora, who was just 23 years old at that time, What happens next was even more disturbing. For Teodora, there was no innocent until proven guilty. Police, doctors, and judges in El Salvador treated her like a criminal from that moment on. Shortly after giving birth, the police took Teodora straight to jail. Finally, one officer convinced the others to take her to the hospital.
1: And
3: he said to them, you know what, this woman is going to die. And if she dies here, for our negligence, we'll have to pay. So let's take her to the hospital. So if she dies, she dies there, but not here. When I arrived at the maternity ward, I don't remember anything else. I don't know what happened. I don't know how I arrived, I don't know.
2: When she regained consciousness, national media
3: outlets were already there to cover her case. At 7 a.m., I was discharged. The doctor said that I couldn't take up the bed space because there were other women who needed more than I did. So they keep me out of the hospital.
2: Doctors in El Salvador have been some of the most loyal enforcers of the abortion ban. Many believe they are legally required to report suspected abortion cases, or they run the risk of being sent to jail.
1: When
3: the police told the doctors that I had killed my baby, they treat me poorly.
1: After
2: Teodora faced her country's medical system, she had to confront the justice system. Her parents scrounged up $750 for a lawyer who eventually abandoned her case. The day of her hearing, a lawyer she met that day represented Teodora in court.
1: She didn't even
3: know who I was, or what my name was, or why I was there. The only thing she did was sign a piece of paper that said, I have the presence of a lawyer there. But she didn't know anything. So they condemned me to 30 years. It was hard to cope in that moment because I already had a son, who at the time was three or four years old. He was very young. He was in a moment when he depended a lot on me. They separated me from him. They separated me from my family. I lost my daughter. I lost everything. And besides that, I had to deal with the sentence they had given me without being guilty.
2: This is all too common in El Salvador, according to Victor Hugo Mata, a lawyer for Citizen Group for the Depenalization of Abortion, a feminist organization working to change El Salvador's restrictive reproductive laws. He represented Teodora during the appeal process.
1: There are even more cases of this nature. There are many women who are in prison who are innocent and who are in prison because of poorly prepared and negligent forensic evidence because of uncritical judges, because of judges who don't read medical reports, judges who don't ask questions, judges who let themselves be guided by supposedly scientific evidence, and who easily sentence these women. To clarify, Teodora did not have an
2: abortion. At nearly nine months into her pregnancy, what happened to her would be medically defined as a late-term obstetric emergency. Her charge was not abortion, but aggravated homicide. Still, the country's harsh laws towards abortion and reproductive rights play a factor in these cases. The total abortion ban has helped to generate a culture in El Salvador that seeks to regulate women's bodies. El Salvador has some of the highest rates of femicide in the world, which also signals a desire to control women's bodies and behavior. So in this context, any deviation from what is considered acceptable behavior for women is considered punishable.
1: There is a presumption of guilt in relation to women in society. It's changing recently, but I think that the majority of society, which is very religious, rejects any possibility that abortion be a right for a woman under certain circumstances. And this also affects the mentality of the courts, who feel that nothing good can be expected from a situation of this
2: nature. After years of legal appeals, Teodora Vasquez was released from prison on February 15,
4: 2018.
2: On the day of her release, Teodora addressed reporters, saying, I know my efforts have been worth it. And now I'm very happy to return again with my family." Her sentence was shortened, but the ruling in her case was not overturned. So, she remains guilty in the eyes of the Salvadoran state. At the time of her release, 27 women remained behind bars under the abortion ban.
3: I promised I was going to keep fighting for them. I said to myself, I'm living here, but not going to remain silent.
2: Around the time that Teodora was released, There was a push within the Salvadoran Legislative Assembly to legalize abortion in certain cases. One of those in favor was Johnny Wright, a representative at the time for the right-wing Arena Party. It was a break from the party line, which strongly opposes legalizing abortion under any circumstances. Traditionally, the left-wing FMLN party has led the charge to legalize abortion.
5: The debate really began with a proposal that came from Lorena Pena, who was, uh, in the previous legislature, a uh, uh, legislator from the FMLN, And her initiative was calling for uh, four exceptions where abortion could be permitted. And that sort of started a discussion that went cold, and it was necessary to bring it up again.
2: After discussions with feminist groups, Wright ended up presenting a different proposal to legalize abortion in two cases rape of a minor and danger to the life or health of the mother.
5: The logic behind that was this is just a, a minimum of all minimums. You know, it would be very difficult, in our logic, uh, to oppose abortion or, or terminating pregnancy in, in cases of a 13 year old girl becoming pregnant from rape. Or, or obviously in cases where a woman faces a certain death or uh, extremely high health risk.
2: While the Salvadoran National Assembly was debating the proposal, Teodora was working to garner international support for the cause. She traveled to Belgium to speak to the European Parliament about her experience. Speaking in Belgium, Teodora said, I haven't come for myself because now I'm free. I've come for my fellow
3: sisters who are still detained in prison. So often we're not listened to. We can't talk like this openly. I can't go to talk about this issue in Salvadorian parliament. I can't talk freely because the state doesn't listen to me. So we have to turn to other countries to be heard. It's a disgrace. It's really a disgrace to know that your own state doesn't listen to
1: you.
2: On May 1st, 2018, newly elected representatives of the Salvadoran Legislative Assembly, filled with religious conservatives, took office. The change shifted the balance of power and effectively killed the proposed bill to legalize abortion in certain cases. It was a missed opportunity for politicians like Johnny Wright.
5: The current legislature, in terms of its uh, political makeup, is, I'd say, more conservative than the previous one that I was a part of. That certainly makes it more difficult to expect any sort of change in current legislation regarding the absolute prohibition of abortion. So I think clearly where we need to focus our energy is uh, public opinion and how we generate the necessary political pressure to obligate the political establishment to change.
2: On a morning in July 2018, feminist activists organized outside a courthouse in western El Salvador. A young woman named Imelda was having a hearing. She's facing a charge of aggravated homicide for a late-term obstetric emergency. In El Salvador, this type of activism can be dangerous. Feminist activists are constantly targeted online, with personal information about their sexual orientation or sexual activity published, along with information about where they live.
3: Even
4: though they don't make a direct attack against us, they make a call to a society that is so polarized and violent. They delegitimize our work, and this can be considered a discourse
3: that invites hate ideology.
4: Despite
2: the risks, Teodora will not stop speaking out against the country's harsh abortion laws. Now that she is free, Teodora works with an organization that runs a theater and arts program in the same women's prison where she spent a decade of her life. Most of the participants are women imprisoned under the country's abortion laws. These women became Teodora's friends while she was still behind bars. Teodora is determined to keep fighting for these women. What
1: I can say is that
3: we have lost the battle, but not the war. And we continue on with strength. We will not surrender. It's a lie that we will surrender because we're not the type of women who give up.
2: Teodora's lawyer continues to fight for the original verdict in her case to be overturned so that she will be fully recognized as innocent. For Making Contact, I'm Anna Catherine Brigida in San Salvador.
0: You're listening to Making Contact. Thanks to the generous support of listeners like you, Making Contact is offered for free to radio stations in the U.S., Canada, Australia, and South Africa. Make sure you don't miss out on behind-the-scenes info and our next program announcement. Go to radioproject.org and see the Stay in Touch section on the right. The experience of Teodora Vasquez, the woman that we just heard from in the previous segment, may sound extraordinary to women who grew up in the U.S., where access to abortion has been legal for much if not all of our lives. However, some state houses across the country are already poised to consider banning abortion if Roe v Wade is dismantled. I sat down with Norbeze Flint, Policy Director at Black Women for Wellness Los Angeles. We talked about some of the potential changes to reproductive health care access under the current US Supreme Court and other changes that have been underway for several years. I'm wondering if You could talk about the criminalization of miscarriage in the United States and how it's played out in
4: certain states. There are about 38 states that have some type of feticide laws, right? Um, So those laws having to do with the treatment um, of a fetus. Um, However, about, I believe, 16 or 17 of them have one or one that don't have an exception for the mother, Right. And so what that is looking like, or what is happening in recent years, is that prosecutors and judges have been using some of these fetic- feticide laws to start convicting and looking at how to criminalize pregnant women. The most famous of ones is Purvi Patel, um, who was in prison for three years after allegedly ending her pregnancy before she was Finally freed by an appellate court. Um, And she was charged with homicide. Um, But there are stories all over the country with women who have. Charged with murder, homicide, manslaughter from having stillborns. And so we're seeing an upkick of uh, prosecutors, particularly in some of these states um, that are leaning more conservative, of finding very creative ways to criminalize women. And I think it's really important also to um, highlight that many of the women who get criminalized are women of color if it's black, Latina, South Asian, Asian, those are the folks who are looking at, aren't getting criminalized for these behaviors. So it's just another way of folks um, trying to control women's bodies, but also criminalizing black and brown bodies.
0: Can you talk about the differences between the different moves that uh, different states are making to restrict abortion access mm-hmm. versus, say, a personhood movement?
4: I want to say about 2008, it seemed to be a direct effort by many of the anti-choice organizations to look locally. Um, And many of them, many of those organizations and funding started looking at how to take over states, Um, while I think most of us in the repo world was still looking at the kind of federal landscape with that being said um the vast majority of states have been for the last seven years have been passing anti-choice legislation um and they have both conservative leaning houses um so legislators and governors and that has resulted in um, a whole bunch of, I think it was 13 states that have trigger laws. So if Roe v. Wade gets overturned, they immediately ban abortion. So essentially, trigger laws are laws that said if, if a Roe v. Wade, um, it becomes no longer the law of the land, that the abortion would be outlawed. Um, either completely or at some type of insane um, week. So like eight weeks after eight weeks in that state. And so many of the states actually have been working on this or passing laws in their state, I would say, to be ready for, I think, the moment that we're in now. Other states um, like California, um, New York, have been... um, expanding reproductive access in our states with the same type of looking at how do we make sure that regardless of what happens at the federal level that women still have access in the state. We've also been looking at how to um, really look at the, the intersections of what it means to be uh, abortion access when it comes to like the Hyde Amendment and getting rid of that and what we call trap laws, which is another way many of the, these um, conservative-leaning um, legislators have been putting into place. And trap laws are essentially laws that, um, that are specifically targeted to abortion providers and making it that they have to do some type of crazy type of laws or regulations um, in order to exist. So for example, what happened with the Well Women's case down in Texas, that the clinic needed to have hallways big enough for two gurneys to get past, right? So talking about hospital type level um, for a small clinic, and most clinics do not have the funding to rebuild their whole buildings in order to uh, comply with many of those laws. And so between trap laws and trigger laws, we are now looking at the vast majority of states where women live, will have less access, and if for some reason um, Roe v. Wade uh, gets dismantled, which we, we think might happen in the next couple of years, um, that there would be just no access in their state.
0: You said the vast majority of states. Mm-hmm. I know you, you can't list all of the states, but can you tell me like how many-ish? And which states will probably be the first to try and restrict abortion access?
4: I'm not sure which states are the most hungriest for this. Um, of course, Mississippi, Alabama are a couple of the states that do have some of these laws on the books. I also believe Utah does as well. I believe 26 states have some type of anti-abortion um, laws on the books that restricts uh, abortion rights. I know a lot of folks have been doing, social justice organizations have been working in civic engagement for a long time and getting folks to color out to vote. Um, But one of the places that we just haven't had our eye on the ball was courts and judges. And this is also why we need to pay super attention to prosecutors and super uh, attention to judges. Before we even get to the Supreme Court. Most women are having to face these prosecutors, these anti choice prosecutors, and these anti choice judges that are making and changing the lives of women on a day to day basis, right? So, for many of the fetusite laws in the country, it is up to the prosecutor to decide if they want to charge or not, right? And they are the ones that are, uh, I would say, bending the law to their will to start charging pregnant women because. The intention of them wasn't really for anti-abortion. It was really to kind of acknowledge pregnant women. Um, and so if you, again, uh, commit a crime against a pregnant woman, that there was an extra charge or enhancement charge. And this is what they have been really working on. of like, whoa how can we make it homicide or how could we like charge this pregnant woman with um some type of manslaughter like her body for some reason doesn't belong to her when she becomes pregnant and they take her uterus essentially and give it its own rights outside of her So I think what's also interesting, the reproductive justice movement started because of, um, particularly black women were fighting for the rights to have children, why And the feminist movement was fighting for the rights not to have children. And so I think that's really important to also think about is how both the anti-choice laws are for all women, However, how, as they also try to regulate women's bodies to have children, they are also still working on ways for women of color to not be able to have children, right? We just worked on a bill with Justice Now, and I think I think we passed it in 2013 to stop the illegal sterilization of women in prison in California, right? And we know that we're a vast majority of women of color. So it's always this very, this kind of double edged sword, I guess, for lack of a better word, of looking at why we see anti choice laws that impact all women, right? And it criminalizes all women and many women are color are uh, the ones that actually get criminalized and have to go to jail for these things, that there also is a, a different wave of still using kind of eugenics policies to stop women of color from being able to have children as well. I was reading an article this, this morning and it said, it is not all women who are conflicted about covenant, it's white women. And it broke down many of the polls that were happening. And then when they broke it down by race, it was really women of color who weren't with Kavanaugh. White women were split. I think we need to start paying attention to the idea of like women at this monolithic group and that we all have the same things to lose. When we have these conversations particularly around the anti-choice movement, we cannot take privilege out of that conversation and how that can be very pervasive and how in which people who I would think that will be wanting to protect their rights for their own body uh, might choose privilege over their gender. Privilege in, in what sense? Essentially trying to save whiteness um, over the sense of womanness, right? If we keep white folks in power, right, um, and decrease access to people of color, then we have, um, you know, we're still winning, even if it's at the loss of our own bodies. What do you
0: think the outlook is for abortion access and Reproductive justice access for women if there is a more conservative justice who's appointed to the Supreme Court?
4: One, I think the future for repro access is scary. That we're going to go through a time where reproductive access is going to be shrunken and limited, and particularly many of the states that have legislative bodies that have been working on this for years. The reproductive laws in this country have never been where we wanted them to be. Healthcare access have never been where we wanted them to be. And so we do also have an opportunity to completely dismantle and rebuild what we want and what we need, right? And what we want and what we need, I think looks very radically different than what we have already, right? What does it look like for people to have health access and health insurance? Um, Like it is total and everybody having it and not have a a kind of cutout service for repro. So like abortion rights is over here and the rest of your health access is over here. So I'm looking forward to that. I do think that the fight, though, um, is with women of color leading the way. Um, I think the fight is that if we learn the lessons that need to be learned and center our movement, center the things that we're going to do around the folks who are most vulnerable, then there could be a very bright future for what it looks like to be women, what it looks like to exist, what it looks like to be human in this country. But that's only if we learn the lessons.
0: That's it for this edition of Making Contact. Making Contacts team is Executive Director Lisa Redmond, Producers Anita Johnson, Monica Lopez, and Salima Hamarani. Audience Engagement Director Sabine Blazin, Dylan Hoyer, and I'm Monica Lopez. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.